If you've ever had to check more than one box when it comes to your identity, then you know that any inquiry about your ethnic background requires a follow-up question. I'm Steph Stock, and each week my guests and I have conversations in color as we explore the gray areas of identity in an America that is mixed up about its race relations. This is Mixed With What? Imagine working tirelessly at a job with little job security, limited benefits, a small wage that often doesn't afford your most basic necessities, let alone an opportunity to enjoy the comforts of retirement. For this job, you're required to have a specific skill set, a high level of artistry that, in order to cultivate, requires a significant investment of both time and money. You might be thinking that sounds like a nightmare rather than your dream job. Yet this is the reality of so many dreamers that live and work in the entertainment industry today. Salaries have not kept pace with the industry and with the times and with emerging technologies. And we're really far apart and we deserve a living wage. That voice is the voice of songwriter, actor, director, and producer, Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's a prominent artist at the top of his industry, and he's joined 20,000 other writers to advocate for themselves and the future of an industry that is currently facing the looming threat of the unethical use of artificial intelligence, unlivable wages, and decreasing diversity. A film set and a TV set is one of the more egalitarian places to work. You will see people of all income levels working on that set, and the people who make up all the shit you like on TV and television deserve a fair wage. Now, Lin-Manuel Miranda wasn't available for this interview. In fact, he wasn't even considered. This is, after all, a podcast about navigating multiracial identity. But I had the chance to speak with someone that I've been wanting to talk to since the Netflix debut of the global hit show Ginny and Georgia. If you're not familiar with Ginny and Georgia, the second season of the show premiered at the beginning of this year and remained on Netflix's top 10 list for weeks. The series was a success with a younger audience, and for millennials like myself, it was a recognizable achievement of how far media has come in terms of representation. My guest today is Kale Futterman, MFA graduate of the esteemed USC School of Cinematic Arts, member of the Writers Guild of America, and staff writer on multiple TV shows, including Netflix's Ginny and Georgia. I recorded this interview with Kale early in the summer, when we were just one month into the ongoing writer's strike. I first reached out because I was excited to speak to a writer that is responsible for telling stories on screen that a younger version of me needed to see. But what I learned during this interview is how seeing more representation on TV is in jeopardy, how the future of storytelling is at stake, and why it's a much larger issue than not being able to see season three of our favorite TV shows. Listen as Kale takes a break from the picket lines to share more on Mixed With What. You mentioned as a staff writer, one of the best things that you could offer is your perspective and your point of view. Mm -hmm. What experiences were you excited the most about lending to the voice of Ginny and Georgia for that second season? Well, I think Ginny and I had so much in common because she enters this school in New England that is predominantly white. And I was like, check, 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 check. Like I have experienced all of these things. So for me, I was just really, really excited to be able to bring 
my authentic experiences to that. I think season one did a great job of setting up Ginny and her arc towards experiencing those things. And we also, I'll just like give a shout out. Half of the room that was brought in was black women for season two. And we all came from very different walks of life. Some were monoracial black women. Obviously, I was a biracial black woman. There were different generations who came in. So I think one of the things that was great about season two was that you really felt that kind of depth of different experiences, just seeing that it is not one thing to be black. It is not one thing to be biracial. And so I think that really added so much to it for sure. In your own words, how do you prefer to identify? I do like to identify as Black biracial because I think I spent so much of my younger life in predominantly white spaces where I was trying to suppress the Black side of my biracial identity just because it was a way of fitting in. And as I got older, I started entering spaces and I think there was a national conversation which just allowed me to really embrace and really revel in the Black side of my identity as well. And it also just gave me the space to recognize that when I walk into a room with strangers, for the most part, people are going to first say that is a Black woman. And that's not something that I want to be ashamed about, but that is something that I really want to embrace. So that's why I like to say Black first and then biracial. Did you ever have a specific moment where you walked into a room and you were like, this is how I'm presenting? Or has it just always been? Uh, You know, I think it's sort of always been the water I was swimming in. There are certain instances that stand out where not necessarily was I learning for the first time, but they were moments where it was sort of unavoidable. I remember when I had gotten into a the high school that I went to, which was an elite prep school in Connecticut, which has at the time especially had a predominantly white student body population. And my eighth grade teacher was like, how are you going to feel being a black person there? And it was one of those moments where I just stopped and I was like, well, I hadn't even thought about that, but thank you, white teacher, for asking me. I'm so glad you're concerned. I also have memories of a family reunion from my dad's side, which is the white side of my family, where a very, very distant, very, very old cousin asked me, it was actually in regards to college applications. I had just gotten to Stanford and he was like, well, that makes sense because it's easier for a colored girl to get into a school like that. So there were times both from people who were not in my immediate sphere and people who were more in my immediate sphere where they really made it kind of laser obvious that you are the other in this predominantly white space. Yeah. Ugh. I've never been to Connecticut. I think that I, maybe in my own ignorance, kind of always assume Connecticut as a very white place. But what is Connecticut like or what was it like for you growing up? So I'm actually from New York City. I just went to boarding school in Connecticut. So I grew up in the city that was incredibly diverse. So for me, it was always that You know, I don't think melting pot is kind of the right word because there certainly are pockets of people, but you can be on the train in New York City and you're seeing every kind of walk of life. So going to Connecticut was actually kind of the eye-opening experience for me because that was the first time I was like, oh my God, it is so glaringly obvious. And I was meeting kids who were from Connecticut, who had grown up in like Greenwich, Connecticut, which is the super wealthy white enclave that 
legitimately had never met Black people outside of the help in their lives before. So it was a totally different experience for me when I went from New York City to Connecticut. How does one cope with that? I imagine there's a bit of culture shock. What was it like like transitioning from your your day-to-day from going from New York, as you said, not necessarily a melting pot, but it's definitely far more diverse. I feel like there were kind of two realities that I was living when I was at this boarding school in Connecticut, because on the one hand, there was part of me that was just so desperate to fit in with the like popular culture and the people who had the most power in that dynamic, which was the predominantly white student population. And so there was this big part of me that was trying to like suppress my blackness, whether that was chemically straightening my hair and flatten ironing it every day so it looked real laid, or whether it was like dressing a certain way, pretending I liked certain music over other types of music. So there was that reality. But then there was also, I think, this part of me that had been instilled from growing up in New York City and also from having a Black mom who was always really proud to be Black and who congregated towards other Black people in whatever environment she was in, that so many of my like core best friends were other women of color. And so I think that there was sort of this tug of war between, oh, I want to fit in, but also in a lot of ways, my home base, even at that school, was always the women of color that I could find in that environment. Did you ever feel like you had this 50-50 type of experience or was it always just a blend as you are? That's a good question. I would say that it didn't feel quite 50-50 because the broader world, well, always if you are Black presenting, quote unquote, like you will always be reminded first and foremost that you are a Black person. And especially having grown up in predominantly white spaces, I think that that became more obvious. The thing that stood out about me was always the Blackness, not the whiteness. And maybe if I had grown up in a predominantly Black community, it would have actually been the opposite. So I wouldn't say it was always 50-50. And there was also always this level of, for example, specifically for Jewishness, When you talk about someone being Jewish, the image that pops into your mind is going to be a white person. And so then I would be in spaces where I'm like, I'm Jewish too, by the way. And everyone would be like, BS, no, you're not. And I'm like, actually, thank you. My last name means maker of fur goods in Yiddish. So like, yes, I am very Jewish. Like, thank you. But no, so I wouldn't say it felt entirely 50-50. It always felt as if you know, your blackness was the identity that the world saw you as first. And it really came to me growing up and growing older and being like, that's dope. And I love that I get to embrace that side. As I say, when I say I'm mixed, I don't have an issue with saying I'm mixed. But when I do, it's like, it's never enough. There's always a follow up question. Do you still deal with that as an adult? How has that changed from the time you were younger versus now? I think the thing that changed the most was really just my feeling about it. I still get the questions all of the time. I still get the glances where someone is clearly trying to figure out, like, what are you? I still, as a screenwriter, we send out your script and it just has your name on it. And like, hell, if anyone can figure out who Kale Futterman might be, it is just a name that doesn't necessarily give away that much. And so I I certainly 
feel like the outside world still is in a lot of ways processing me, but it's really just the way that I process their confusion has changed because I just feel so much more comfortable in myself and knowing exactly who I am. And the to the 50-50 of it all, it's I used to be like, I'm half black, I'm half white. And I've really tried to just change my vocabulary around that because I don't really feel it's like I'm half of either. I'm both. I'm, you know, this other combination of things. So yeah, I'd say it's, it's really more about me than have they changed and have their questions changed. Do you feel like writing has helped you come into that voice or find that vocabulary? Or would you say, is it okay, I think of writers as like, oh my gosh, you're a writer. And I realize that like <laughs> that might not be, you know, everyone's thing, but I just think the world of writers and I think what they do and the skills that you have are just so important. So I'm just curious as it comes to finding your voice, like, do you find that through, is that just age and experience or how you identify professionally and what you do? Has that helped you? find your voice in the way in which you articulate who you are and how you identify? Great question. It's a bit chicken and the egg for me because I really came into deciding to pursue writing as a career around the same time that I really was coming into myself as a Black woman and really being able to embrace that, which is to say, especially around kind of the college years when I was making that transition. But that was also kind of just on at the outset of the Black Lives Matter movement. So there was just so much conversation out there about what it means to be Black. And as a writer, I think we just always process what's going on in the world through our writing. So I found myself just continually writing these characters who were confronting their identity I always was using writing to process what I was going through. But then also at the same time, I started realizing that what I felt my purpose was as a writer was to try to tell stories about Black people and the diversity of Blackness, trying to show that we are not a monolith and really wanting to put the stories front and center that I didn't get to see on screen when I was a kid and that I wish I had gotten to see on screen when I was a kid. So it really, I think, one fed into the other, my own identity, my writing, and then keep going going until now that is like my calling card. I just, I love telling stories about what it means to be Black and all of its beautiful variations. Did you have conversations with your parents growing up? You mentioned your mom is Black and a very proud Black woman and that your dad is Jewish. I say this, I'm projecting, but in my family, it was like skirted over. And people that I've been speaking to, it seems like it's like one or the other. It's like, it's like head on, we're talking about this, or we don't say anything, we're zip lit. Where did you fall on that spectrum? It was definitely the latter, just like you for for my family. We did not really talk about it. And I don't think it was so much dancing around the issue. It's just, I don't think one, the national conversation was at the level that it is today. And also I would say that it just, because we were living in New York City, because we were living in what was ostensibly a very progressive bubble, and it wasn't like I was experiencing hate crimes or anything like that. It was always just like the teensy microaggressions that I don't even think a lot of us had the vocabulary to point out. So 
there weren't these like huge instances that we as a family like needed to have these big sit downs for. And so we didn't really talk about it. But I will say now, especially as I've gotten older and especially as just these conversations are happening more broadly in in the culture, me and my mom definitely talk about it a lot. And we talk about what does it mean to be a Black woman, but also just how different our experiences have been with her growing up as a full, like a, you know, monoracial Black woman versus me growing up as biracial and what experiences I had that she didn't have and vice versa. So it's definitely been something we're talking about a lot more now. And when you speak to your mom about these things, how do you begin to have that conversation? My mom's just my homie. We really just like to honestly talk about everything, whether it's stupid crap or if it's this more profound things like what your racial experience was like growing up. So honestly, it's again, it's never really precipitated by big events so much as just like we're sitting there having a glass of wine. Let's let's chat about what experiences we're like. I love that. Out of all the conversations that you've had with your mom, like what do you think are some of the more stark differences? Because I imagine it's difficult having a child that will experience the world quite differently than you will. Yeah, you know, my mom grew up in a very black community and so I think so much of the difference in our upbringings was just that she grew up around people who looked like her and I grew up as generally like one of the tokens in my environment so there were you know subtle things like my relationship to like body image was so different because I was growing up around these like skinny white girls who at the time were trying to look like Paris Hilton and my body shape really did not fit in that mold versus my mom who grew up as kind of like the little, she was called the twig in this black community. And my aunt was the more like shapely, you know, she was called the brick house growing up. And like, that was the ideal figure. So it was even things of my mom trying to remind me when I was growing up, like, Hey, your body is beautiful as it is. Like, do not try to fit into that other mold. And then in terms of what I think her experience was raising a biracial child Frankly, I think it's something that she thinks about more now. Like we've all had therapy now, so we've we've had time to really think about what these kinds of things mean. I know that there were just odd things that I think more were specific to just having a, a black child in that environment. Like I would be the only one with braids in my hair at school. And then the white moms would be like asking my mom to braid their little white girl named Sarah's hair, like stuff like that. So I really think that was kind of the more profound thing at the time. And now in retrospect, she's been able to look back at what are some of the differences of what it was like to raise a biracial child. Did you ever have moments of just being confused For me, it was kind of like, I'm in like black women take care of me. Black women are home. Like I love black women, but when I go out into the world, it's a different thing. Did you ever have any moments where you had to separate the two? I would say for me, more than confusion, the word that I felt the most was probably just frustration because there was unfortunately, I think so few models for me of like, what it would mean to love myself as I was in that environment. And I just remember feeling this weird, being in this sort of nebulous area of like, 
I I almost fit in with these kids because like I'm pretty light skinned and, you know, I have I have very curly hair, but it's like, you know, it's quote unquote, good hair kind of stuff. And so I just always had these frustrations of like, oh, well, if my lips were a little bit smaller or if my like, you know, whatever was a little bit this or that, that I would fit in. So I think frustration probably more than confusion. And then as an adult looking back, like frustration, because I'm like, oh my God, I wish I just loved myself and embraced all of these things about myself back then as well. Totally. Do you ever think about how like now the things that we have naturally become, you know, in style. I don't even know if that's what we want to call it, but like, that's what people are going after. And I don't know if maybe I think of it differently now because I'm a full like grown adult and I've had more time to process, but I do think about that about, okay, is it me or is it society telling me like, do I feel better because of just like this age that I live in? Or is it also because of where society is and now what I possess is what other people want. I think about that all of the time. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. I mean, there is this like trend of like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, that like kind of exotic look, but not being too exotic. And I feel like being biracial right now kind of hits that exact like zeitgeist axis of like, what you should look like, having a tan, having lips, having like more of a butt and all of that stuff. So a thousand percent, I mean, I I do believe that a lot of my feelings, internal feelings of beauty do come from just my age and being like, great, I'm 30 now. Love that. Love how I'm looking. You're doing great. But I also do notice on the societal level that there are like the boys that I used to chase when I was younger are now looking at me because magazines say like girls who look like me are now in vogue or whatever it is. So a thousand percent, I think that is accurate. And I think it's just so important for us to remember that whatever beauty trends there are, they come and go. It's constantly shape-shifting. You can never try to like hit the target of what the trends are and hopefully just more of the internal love of ourselves coming forward. Now, you mentioned the national conversation, which I think is so interesting because you're a part of that. And like, do you ever think about that as a writer, as someone who's putting things up on TV and on screens and just out into the world? You're shaping the way in which people think about themselves, in which they talk about themselves, and also maybe even in Ginny and Georgia, like the way these young teenagers think about what's beautiful. Is that something that you think of, you consider as you're writing? It's interesting because I think when you're in a writer's room, it can be very easy to kind of forget the wider world outside that is going to see the project because you're just so in the weeds of making this thing and you're just trying to give it your all to make this feel as authentic and beautiful and all of those things that you can in this group of six to eight people in your writer's room. And what's been so fascinating for me since, especially since this season premiered, which really premiered to just like such awesome feedback off of it. I've been out in the world now and I'll have like some Ginny and George swag on like my backpack or something. And teenagers will just come up to me and they're like, you don't know how much this show means to me. Even just seeing on Instagram, all of the comments that we get. 
And there's been so many people who are young biracial teenagers, but also just teenagers from all kinds of walks of life who are struggling with mental health issues or any of the kinds of issues that I think Ginny and Georgia really tackles. So it is incredibly profound after it's been out in the world to really step back and be like, oh my God, this has been seen by millions and millions of people and it's having such a cool impact. It it feels really special. Is Ginny and Georgia, was that like the first big thing that you had written for or was that kind of like, this is a big deal or were you kind of just like, cool, yeah, it's another writing gig? This was my first union writing project. So it was totally a big thing for me. I had been an assistant for four, I first I'd gone to grad school for two years for screenwriting, then worked as an assistant for four years, just trying to get my way up that Hollywood ladder. I had done a couple of non-union projects before that, but Ginny and Georgia was what got me into the writer's guild. And so that was the culmination of at that point probably eight years of work. So it was incredibly, incredibly exciting. I joined for season two. So I'd already seen season one that had already become like the hit of the spring. So I came in feeling this real excitement about being able to lend my experience as a biracial woman to Jenny's story. And I ended up being really proud of what we did in season two. I think it really kind of hit the mark of what that show can do best. I'm actually so glad that you just said that people are coming up to you and like these young girls are coming up to you. And I say this as somebody who like, I am not the target demographic. I don't think Virginia and Georgia, I know I'm not, I am a woman in her thirties, <laughs> but I remember watching the first season and being like, that's a, that's a cute show for Gen Z, like good for them. And then I watched the second season and I was like, oh, they did that. They really <laughs> leveled up there were so many moments in there that I was like, who is in their writer's room? Because that was so specific. And I feel so seen as a woman in my 30s. And I'm so glad for the younger generation that is watching this right now, because I didn't have that on screen. Totally. There's a few things that stood out to me, even just like the therapist and having a biracial therapist. I was like, I didn't get that until like last year. What is it like working in a writer's room, having Black women, predominantly Black women and people of color in that writer's room creating the stories? It makes all of the difference. And I also think what's so important is having Black women from, like I mentioned, different walks of life, but also just at different staffing levels. We had Black women at the lower level, the mid-level, and one of our executive producing writers was also a Black woman. And that makes a huge, huge difference in a writer's room because you can't only rely on your staff writer, which is your lowest level position. You can't only rely on them to be the voice of color in your room because one, they have less experience. They're going to be less likely to make a comment if they're concerned about a direction that something is going. Some people are, but a lot aren't because this is their first time and they're concerned about their job and they don't really know what line that they should be towing. So having upper level people in your writer's room who can really speak to those experiences and who aren't afraid to put that finger up and be like, hold up, that's not what we're doing. We got to go this way. That makes a huge, huge difference in the room. And I think the example of Ginny getting this Black therapist, all three of the Black women in that room were like, 
if she's going to therapy, that's who she's going to need. And also because her father, Zion, is the one who really instigates this happening. As a Black dad, he is able to speak from his experience and be like, I understand what my daughter needs. And that's someone who she's not going to have to explain all of these things about what does it mean to be Black? What does it mean to be biracial? Someone who just needs to know who Ginny is and kind of comes with her own set of understanding. So I think that is just like a prime example of what it means to have a truly diverse writer's room and diversity, not just as sort of a feather in the cap, but like truly diverse and equitable in terms of who has the power in the room. So when you talk about being a staff writer versus like you wrote episode five, so what does that look like? Just for people who aren't familiar with like the industry and writers, it's like a staff writer versus someone who like wrote the whole thing. Like how how do you differentiate that? What is like the terminology around it? Totally. It's so confusing. It's like the Wizard of Oz's curtain. A simple breakdown is essentially you have three tiers of writers. There's lower level, mid-level, and upper level And there's kind of subcategories within that. So staff writer is the lowest level writer. That is typically someone who just came from being an assistant and they've got promoted into the room. And what it means is that at the minimum, that person is going to be part of the writer's room every day when you're sitting around the table breaking stories. They are contributing their experiences. They might be pitching specific ideas, pitching on episodes. But then also writing an episode is a separate thing. So most staff writers are not contractually guaranteed an episode, but depending how many writers are in the room, there's like a high chance that you will end up writing an episode. So I was a staff writer that first season of Ginny and Georgia, and then I ended up getting to write episode five. So basically like we all break what we call breaking the episode together, which is essentially just giving us the structure of what needs to happen in that episode. Then I go off and I write an outline and then we all discuss it. And then I go off and write the script and eventually it makes it through a pipeline that gets it onto your Netflix screen. <laughs> Love that. Thank you for breaking that down because it is a very sure. mysterious process for yes. those of us who aren't familiar. So the title of your episode, I don't want to butcher it. So I'd like to have you say it. <laughs> episode 205, Lackas are lit. Lactas are lit. Yes. <laughs> I did okay? You did great. <laughs> what were some of the things that you pulled from your personal experience to infuse into that episode? What was fun about that episode was that not only did I get to speak to some of my experiences being a biracial woman. So for example, Ginny has this talk with her dad, Zion, about the teacher she keeps having struggles with and how he's assigned her a book assignment, which ostensibly he thinks is like, I'm doing you a favor. I'm letting you choose an author of color for us to read, but it's really just piling more work onto Ginny. So I think I really enjoyed getting to pull from some of my experiences, especially in academia with white teachers who really meant the best but their best fell short of what I needed and they were incapable of seeing that. But then also, as I mentioned, my father is the white side of my biraciality and he is Jewish. And so 
getting to uh, tell a story about one of our Jewish characters, Maxine, and her family's traditional Hanukkah celebration making latkes was just a really fun like blend of all of the cultural experiences I grew up with. Growing up in New York City, I went to a school that was like 97% Jewish. I was not the only half black, half Jewish kid at that school. There were literally multiple of us. So it was just really fun to kind of get to pull on some of the things that I grew up doing and the foods that I got to eat growing up. But I also, what I just loved about the episode was that it marks kind of a turning point in Ginny's journey where she starts getting the help that she needs. And we see her starting to move on this upward trajectory. So there was just a lot of fun in the episode, lots of tears and poignancy too, but I think it was just a really overall an exciting episode to write. It was really exciting to watch too. I'm so glad. (laughs) One thing I think is interesting is that for so long, I have seen a lot of shows about Black people or even the mixed experience that are written by people who aren't Black or who aren't mixed. Yeah, yeah. I'm listening to you and like you didn't even mention that as like an interest to like write outside (laughs) of your own experience. Who do you write for? Which I feel like is like a, a very deep question, but how would you describe the target demographic that you write for? I write for the little girl that I was. I write for who I am now. And then I also write for my mom and my aunties. That's like when I think when I'm writing a project, it is one of those three things very, very clearly in my head. And I've written in all of those camps because I've done YA stuff. And I'm like, that's what I wish I could have seen. I've done the kind of like, for lack of a better term, like the insecure Issa Rae, like girl in her late 20s, early 30s, figuring shit out. Like I've written that. But then I also have written plenty of things, especially like I wrote this Lifetime movie and Lifetime has a predominantly like older Black woman audience. So when I'm writing that one, I'm thinking of my mom and my auntie sitting in front of their cable TV and watching it. So I really love to write for all three of those camps. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) What are some of the things you did watch growing up that maybe made you feel seen? Maybe not in your entirety. Was there anything that you watched growing up that you were like, yes, that's me, and you felt represented? Probably the closest for me was Moesha. I loved Moesha. And then also Sister, Sister. I think what I loved about those shows was that they showed black girls who were both like objects of desire, but also smart girls and like brash girls and girls who were bold and who, you know, they, they didn't occupy that stereotype that so often, especially like through the nineties, we would see of like the black welfare queen or like the drug addict or the pimp or the criminal, like any of those things. And I was like, oh, these are just like girls who could be my neighbor. And I really felt seen by having those kinds of portrayals on screen. So it's so exciting to be on a show like Ginny and Georgia, which I know is also reaching a young audience like those shows did and having girls today be able to look at a show I wrote on and be like, oh my gosh, that feels like a connection point for me. What are you enjoying watching right now? Are you watching anything right now? Yes, I'm watching all of the things right now because our industry is on strike. So (laughs) I 
have a lot more time in my day than I did a month ago. So TV wise, I've been watching Industry, which is on HBO, and it is a super, super fun show. It's like if you like Succession, but wish there was more sex and drugs in it, Industry is the show for you. And that is up my lane. So I've been loving that one. And then also what I've been doing is watching all of the movies that are like in the zeitgeist that I thought I've seen because they're so just like cultural phenomenons. But I'm like, oh, I've never actually sat down and watched this. So for example, like Casablanca, I realized I was like, I've seen 8 million clips of it. I know what happens, but I was like, I've never actually sat down and watched Casablanca. So I did that last week and it was lovely. (laughs) It's been or would it be on 35 days? It's been over a yeah, month. something like that. Yeah. So how does your day-to-day look besides, you know, having more time to watch, catch up on your shows? <laughs> how does your day-to-day look different than it did a month ago? Oh, it is so different. I, I was in a writer's room when the strike was called. Just the nature of this business, you're always kind of working on other development, other stuff going on. So I would be spending my evenings like writing this other spec pilot that I was working on or like writing a pitch for something, talking to producers about other potential projects we could do together. So busy from like the morning until eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night most days doing something I love so it doesn't feel as draining as that might sound on a daily basis, but a lot more time. And the strike, I mean, we spend, you're expected to spend four hours a day out on the picket lines. So nowadays I do that in the afternoons, but I'm like, I have hours on either side that I'm not used to having. So it's been a combination of like watching all these movies that I've wanted. And then I took up pickleball. So that's been, that's been my other strike uh, activity. Oh, wow. So when Ginny plays pickleball, we know why. What- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see if I can sneak that in. <laughs> okay. So what does it mean? Like expected, like expected to do, like, what does that look like? First, just to like hype up the union, because I think that's so important. Being in a union is such a privilege, but it also then comes with a call to action. To give an example, before Ginny and Georgia, I wrote a feature for a production company that did non-signatory. So that means that they were not like contractual signees with the writers union. So they could just hire any writer that they want from like out of grad school, which is what I was. And to write a feature script for that, you get paid, I got paid $10,000 versus the Writers Guild minimums for a feature would be $100,000. So it's literally a 10x difference. And that sounds like, oh my God, $100,000, that's so much. But it's also important for people to understand just how slow this business goes. So that $100,000 is easily going to be spread out of over two years of work. You have 25% coming off of the top from your reps commissions. So it ends up being a decent living, but it's not like this, you know, it's not like, oh my God, I'm going out and buying my yacht or anything versus that $10,000. Like if I really break it down, I was probably making like maybe 25 cents an hour for the amount of work that I put into that. It was a year of my life and I only got $10,000 to do it. 
and was working on it full time while I was doing it as well. So it's really like such a privilege to be in the union because it really just protects you and makes this be a viable career where you can live in Los Angeles and pay your rent, pay your bills, all of that. But then also it becomes a call to action. So when we have a big labor movement like the current strike, you are expected to show up for your, your union, and that can mean different things if you're LA-based or New York-based because we have an Eastern Guild as well, and you're physically able to. That means going out and walking around in circles with a sign in front of the various studio lots. And there's also other ways people help, whether it's coordination or like text banking or social media awareness, various ways that you can. Are there ways that people who aren't writers or aren't in the Writers Guild? Like, are there ways that they can show support for writers? Yeah, there totally are. I would say step one that's super easy is check out any of the Writers Guild Instagram page. So there's the Writers Guild of America, but also the two subcategories of the Western branch and the Eastern branch. They post all kinds of information. But I know from having seen that, Some of the things that you can do are honestly just posting in solidarity is a really big thing. Just showing the studios that, hey, look, your audience members are actually in favor of getting these writers what they deserve. They recognize that this content cannot be made without the writers. So that's like, you know, a small step that everyone can do fairly easily. But then also if you're available to do so, snacks are always very welcome at picket lines. There are people not in the industry who will just drive by and drop off like a trove of granola bars or bananas or whatever it is. And that really helps because when you're out there for four hours walking in the sun, you start getting a little hangry and you're like, I need, I need something to motivate me. And then finally, I think if you're financially able to do so, there is something called the Entertainment Community Fund. There is information available easily online to find that. But the Entertainment Community Fund is a fund for people in sort of all of the core parts of the industry, but also all of the kind of tangential streams. So anyone say, for example, like if you are a someone who's like a PA on set or something, or if you're a writer's room assistant or any of these kinds of, all of the buttresses that make this industry work and you are in need of financial assistance during this period, they offer, I believe it is interest-free grants or interest-free loans. So that is like a really useful tool for people who are struggling financially during this because like I said, It sounds like we make a lot more money than we do, but when you really break it down, most people are living paycheck to paycheck. So having a potential three plus month work stoppage really does make a dent in those savings if you've got them at all. So any way that you can help is really, really appreciated. I really, really just appreciate everything that you mentioned about having a writer's room and a diverse writer's room and why it's so important if demands aren't met if things just continue how they are, I mean, they won't, we hope because of this strike, but if demands aren't met, if, you know, if these networks and studios just like won't budge, what do you fear will be the outcome for all of this progress? I count it as progress that we've made on screen over these past 20, 30 years. I think the biggest threat, especially facing writers of color is just the viability of supporting yourself 
while doing this work. So many, especially again, writers of color don't come from backgrounds in which they have, you know, parents' money to fall back on. They don't have a big financial safety net. And so making a reasonable, steady income in this industry is the difference between between them being able to do it and being able to not do it. And so currently the state of things, it's just so hard to do that. People go months and months or honestly, even years sometimes between writers' rooms and these writers' rooms are shorter and shorter season orders. So for example, back in the day, you might be on a show that you're in the writer's room for say like 44 to 50 weeks of the year. So you're working the full year. So for like a show like Grey's Anatomy, that's one of the few shows that still follows that similar model. So when you're working on a show for pretty much the whole year, amazing. You're able to sustain yourself, you know, like when you can have a holiday, you know, like, hey, I'm going to have rent coming in for all of this time. But then I've been on a show that was as short as 16 weeks. And when you're in that room, it's really hard to start looking for other jobs. Other jobs might come along, but it's right before your room ends. So you can't even accept them. So you can go then a 16 week gig, and that might be the only job that you get that year. And it's not at all for a lack of trying. So especially for writers of color, some of the guilds uh, requests to the studios are just really trying to address like, how do we make this a sustainable career and make people not be essentially gig workers? What motivates you to keep going in this industry? Because as you've laid out and like, as we know, it's not easy. I mean, you mentioned it took you eight years, like get you into a room. And then now even that is, you know, at jeopardy. And so what motivates you to keep going and keep telling stories? Part of it is masochism. I feel like I'm just like, you know, writing is so brutal in so many ways, but it's also like one of those things that when you write a script that you're really proud of or something makes it to air, it's just the most intense rush because you're like, I beat absurd odds to be able to do this thing. But then on a more wholesome note, I think there is just, I always talk about how during, at the beginning of the pandemic, I did a pivot year and I started working in high school administration because I was just struggling for so long as an assistant. I couldn't pay my bills. And I was just like, you know, I, I need something to change at this stage of my life. And I loved working at this high school. It was an amazing experience. And there was one version of my life where I saw myself potentially just following that path and being like, you know what, writing was a hobby that's in my rear view mirror. But there's just this sort of internal urge and what I always called the like, the what if, like what if I had just given that one more shot? And so I gave myself this like final year to be like, let me put it all on the wall, like see what I can do. If it doesn't work, fine, I'll get to say that I tried my best. And I think it's just like you are either born with that compulsion to tell stories and that compulsion to process everything that you're seeing around you through the page or you're not. And if you are born with it, you really like there are so many things that have to align to make it possible. But when those stars align for you, it is honestly the most rewarding possible thing I will sit in my writer's room being like, I cannot even believe someone is 
paying me to do this as my job. This is incredible. I love what I do. So it is a true, what a blessing to, to get to do it. I'm very impressed by the way that you've like found your voice and you just exude all of this passion. You're able to use your experience to really be you and do what you do even better. So do you have any advice for anyone that is looking to find their voice or looking to tell their story? Maybe it's not on a big screen or to as wide of an audience as you know you share, but just any advice for anybody who may be looking for ways to tell their own story, even if it's to nobody else but themselves, just to own their story? I think one of the things for me that really clicked in as I've gotten older was a sense of life isn't perfect. You might not be exactly where you are in your life, but we literally only get this one life. And how can I possibly make the most of it? How can I infuse as much joy and love and just that feeling of internal peace into my life? So I really think that we all are on our own unique journey. And the more you can just start blocking out all of the BS that's coming out at you from the outside world and just being like, what is at my core? What is it that makes me feel deeply at peace? Who am I when I go to bed? And like, how do I feel about myself? That's really something that I've gotten older that I try to hold on to because there's other people out there you're going to disappoint. There are other you know, rulers that people are living their life by that you're going to want to measure yourself by. And you really just can't. It's like, how can I take everything that my life has given me, all of the good, all of the bad, and just accept that this is my journey and knowing that you are the only one living that journey. And if you are a writer, for example, I always say that your experience is your superpower. Nobody else can speak to it the way that you can. And as much pain as you might have had in your life or as much amazingness that you have in your life, all of that is the recipe that makes you who you are. And that is amazing and embrace that fully. Wow. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your superpower with us. (laughs) No, truly. Thank you so much. This is a really cool podcast. I really appreciate having this space because like you said, there's just a lot of misinformation and Hollywood can be very confusing. So it is always a real opportunity for us to get to talk to the broader public and explain what's going on and why, if you would like Ginny and Georgia season three and four to be on your screens in not 10 years, we need need these studios to come back to the table. I want to thank Kale for joining me on Mixed With What, sharing her story and advocating for storytellers to get equitable pay. If you'd like to support the efforts of the WGA, there are a number of ways you can help. I've listed the resources Kale mentioned in the show notes as well. I would really appreciate it if you shared this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone who will listen. While you're at it, leave a review and let me know what you'd like to hear more of from Mixed With What. I hope you continue to ask the tough questions, speak about the hard topics, and always listen with love. See you next Wednesday on Mixed with What.